Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, all right, all right. Happy oh, Friday. Little McConaughey there. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) Ralph Tunis, how are you today? I'm doing well. That was a pretty good McConaughey, actually. Your second one. My wife does it all the time. So she's Oh, yeah. It's pretty spot on. Yeah. She's a big fan of his work. I saw that movie in the theaters. I hope hope she's just a big fan of her work. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Days and Confused was the uh, Days and Confused crowd here. Isn't that his first. uh, Piece of work. Was, those are the first three words that he ever said on camera. That's right. It is when I in, saw the movie. I, I, I just it was it's crazy how much of a career he had given that role. I, he just seemed like just like a goofball character actor in that one movie, but uh, amazing. Yeah, he was no, sort of like indeed. Sean Penn in Fast Times. Sean Penn, you would never guess that guy would have had such a career. Yeah. Same so thing. I was going to read his book, um, Green Light. Yeah. But I heard that he narrated his own audiobook, and I had to do it. I think I think anybody here deserves to hear McConaughey talk about his own life. It is it is as McConaughey as you can imagine it. It's pretty does, astounding. Does he have the whistle? Is he does his know, own voice? It's it is it is outrageous. <laughs> his, his narration is outrageous. Oh, it's so it. McConaughey. It's almost like he's doing himself. It's I do like it. I do like it. Anyway, but let's let's ditch McConaughey. We got we got Baltunas here. We got better authors here. Yeah, fuck McConaughey. And <laughs> 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 the great words of NWA. Anyway, um, by the way, and on that note, 
we will have a wide ranging discussion. There might be a swear word or two. So this is not a place to get investment advice. This is education and entertainment. And today we're going to talk with one of the moguls of finance about one of the moguls of finance, uh, which is the, the bogle effect. And uh, Mr. Balchunas, you, you've dove in feet first, head first, and, uh, and uh, looked at all things bogle. I have definitely read a couple of his uh, books previously. So I'm looking forward to uh, the new knowledge that you bring to the table and, um, you know, what, what the Bogle effect is all about and, uh, and, and how that came to be. And I think, didn't it start with him writing a university paper or something like that, his research paper, which he put out, defended, and then started to build this company based on that? How, how did it all start? Uh, you mean, how did he start? Yeah, how did how did he um, start? How did that? How did this avalanche yeah. start of trillions of dollars yeah. saved for? Yeah, investors? it's um, it's a really weird story. I didn't realize how the amount of serendipity involved. Um, you know, starting at Princeton, this is fascinating. First of all, he gets a scholarship to Princeton; he couldn't have gone otherwise. And he's in the library looking for something to write his thesis on, his senior thesis. And he just glances; he gets a copy of, um, I believe it's Fortune. I gotta double check. Forbes or Fortune, just get this. I think it's Fortune. And uh, he pages through, finds an article of new money, uh, big money in Boston or something. He goes, Oh, this is interesting. I'm gonna write my thesis about this. And it's interesting. I looked at the magazine cover. It didn't have like the table of contents, it was just this picture, almost like the New Yorker, just one big picture. And it wasn't about mutual funds. So he had to literally page through this magazine. I also looked to, to find out what other magazines would be lying around in December 1949. And the cover of Time featured Conrad Hilton. So ha I mean, had he picked up Time, would he be the low-cost hotel guy? We'll never know. But it's crazy how much chance plays into stuff like this. But he read it, did his thesis, um, and the thesis got him hired at Wellington, which is a mutual fund company, worked there. The, like the, the, well, they loved him. He was made CEO at 35 really young. And basically his first task was to figure out how to get money uh, and st or stop losing assets because in the sixties, everything was going to high growth. Kind of reminds you of like the arc oh, yeah. situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like everybody was Kathy Wood at the time, right? Um, some of these valuations were crazy and his Wellington fund was conservative balanced and it was losing assets and they, he had to figure out what to do. So as he said, I was selling bagels, but everybody wanted donuts. So he teamed, he wanted to team up with an equity manager. He finally went through four or five people. One of those people was the capital group and one was Franklin. And he was pretty good friends with those guys. Had he teamed up with them, I don't think we have a Vanguard. But anyway, he, he got to the fifth choice, which was um, uh, this company called Thorndike, Doran, et cetera. And they had an IVIS fund. And it was high growth like ARC. Teamed up. They... Effectively, he gave over voting control of the company. And to make a long story short, they did good at first, but then it all fell apart when the 60s fell apart. And in 1972-73, the market was down, I think, about 35%. Yeah. And their growth fund was down worse. Yeah. Brutal. And so everybody, they, they started fighting with each other. Vogel was like, you ruined my company. They were like, well, no, you're awful. And they had a what's called a bifurcation period. And ultimately, Vogel got fired. And so he thought... Thought he was done, but then he realized he was the, he was actually the chairman of the funds themselves, which is a weird, as you guys know, the funds actually contract out to different places. So he still had 
some control. So they figured out, well, with my control, let's come up with a solution. And, and one of the his solution was he had like five different versions, but one of them was to mutualize the whole company, Wellington. They didn't want to do that. Um, but they did allow him to have a, have a back office company that would do like the paperwork and the administration functions and not investing. And he, they made it mutual, mutualized so that it wouldn't look like he was in it to get rich or to compete with them. And he had said earlier he thought the mutual structure was good because it's, you serve one master kind of thing. He had written that. But I, you know, I talked to people because most of them think it was virtue by necessity. He was just trying to save his job. It wasn't really an altruistic vision. And so that, that ultimately is how Vanguard got created. And I don't think once the – it was almost a freak accident. I mean, it's really rare that the investment advisor and the fund chairman would be at, that, uh, at odds like that. And so the whole situation is just really quirky. And most people probably would have left and gotten a different job somewhere. He stayed and fought. So there's a couple different things that had he had gone in a direction, you're just going to get a Vanguard. Um, and he, he had a bunch of kids at the time. I think he had like four or five. He, he had six kids total. But it's not like he he could have easily just gone to like one of these big asset managers and, and, and cashed out. And you know, but he chose to do this other path. And that's it. They they ran a back office company, and ultimately he slowly built on it. And the first thing was to add the index fund, which technically wasn't managing money. That's another crazy serendipitous loophole. And, you know, and then, and then over time, you're able to launch active funds again and uh, international funds. And they built out this whole company, but it really started as a, as a back office company. And that, that, that story, and, and here's another thing that was fascinating. When Vanguard started, they had 80 straight months of outflows. <laughs> It's crazy considering they haven't seen one wow. month of outflow since, I think one month yeah. in like 30 years or something yeah. like that. <laughs> but they had 80 straight months. And, uh, you know, it, it really is a fascinating story. Uh, and then it took them 10 years, to, uh, 25 years to get to 10% market share. So a lot of the book is, is me saying how this guy was able to sell something that's average and operate outside of the system. Uh, he wasn't giving loads. So he had to sort of, it's almost like making a movie and the cable, none of the networks or the movie theaters will, will actually hold it. And so you're yeah. having to sell this thing outside of a complete system. And I yeah, thought you, that was you're outside the normal distribution network. Yes. Entirely. Can you, can you talk about, or, or do you know much about the, the uniqueness of the mutualization and, and how that played in? And I, I do believe there's, it, like the deadline for that is approaching. Isn't there some sort of uh, copyright or trademark or, or, or something that prevents other companies from doing what they did. And are, are you familiar with all of those? But yeah, but start with what it is, right? Why, sure. why yeah. that was so yeah. special. Cause it was interesting. It, it seems like an altruistic, it is an altruistic element, but it wasn't, it seems to me that it was a serendipitous reality, not a, not crisis a necessity change. Necessity change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to, uh, the book's, favorable towards him, but I try to highlight yeah. the warts and the convenience of it all. I mean, remember, he was working at Wellington. He was very happy there. That's an active fund company. In fact, I interviewed 50 people, and one of them was Jason Zweig, who pointed out, mm -hmm. he sent me this speech that Bogle gave, I believe, in 71, which was three years before Vanguard. And the speech is him defending active managers against the S&P 500, which the New York Times wrote an article saying they're not that good. And he's like, no, that's the wrong benchmark. And you can tell it's Bogle. It's the same voice, but it's making the opposite argument. And I had to put that in the book because I, I wanted everybody to see that, you know, you can do great things without being like Jesus. I mean, he clearly wasn't, 
it wasn't like he just hit his head on the toilet and said, I'm going to be, I'm going to do all this great stuff. A lot of it just kind of was circumstantial. He did make the most of it and he was really good at selling and marketing and talking and communicating. And that helped a lot. And I think he truly believed in it once he found this, but the mutual ownership structure to answer your question is it's unique in that the funds own the company. Um, and so the shareholders, the fund, so the shareholders vote for representation of the funds, which then is the board of directors. So the, the reason that's powerful is that every time they have assets or extra profit, they would vote to lower the fees. Obviously, they obviously spend money on the company a little bit, but predominantly that would be the best interest of the shareholders is I want lower fees. And so you rinse and repeat that for 45 years and that fee went from like 45 to three. And what's interesting to me is that nobody really was asking for low fees back then. Um, and so the idea of doing this before people were asking for it was also interesting to me. Um, and it, I have this interesting uh, dichotomy in the book where it's 1987 and he's giving his annual speech to the Vanguard crew. And I'm, and that's the year Wall Street came out where Gordon Gekko's like greed is good. And I, I just imagine Bogle speaking in 1987 sounds exactly like he did in 2015 or 1995. And yet the culture really about greed and, and, and Gecko became like, obviously he brought in a lot of people to Wall Street, actually. I mean, he kind of glamorized that life. And the, the dichotomy of those two speeches I thought was interesting, but I thought that Vogel had locked into something. And after seeing what happened in the 60s with his you know, betrayal of, of his own company, he was just determined to never leave that one tunnel vision idea. But it's... You know, in the 80s, people were, were having fun and, like, doing cocaine and, like, riding in limos. And, and then in the 90s, there's a whole different kind of, like, atmosphere. And every single speech, there's a book of his speeches. I mean, it's almost, like, so uh, consistent. And I found that interesting as well. Because I lived through those cultures, and I remember how different things were. And the markets swoon, and then they crash. And even after the crash in 87, his speech sounded the same. And so I think... It was that rinse and repeat for, for 30, 40 years, and I think that also built up trust. So when everybody else got cheap, people were like, okay, I'm glad you're cheap, but I, you know, Vanguard had really branded itself as, as the cheap company because they've been doing it for so long. But, I mean, look, the book isn't like, um, you know, it, I opened the book with saying, look, this guy was savage towards just about everybody, um, including my livelihood, ETFs. I mean, I have a whole chapter with Bogle you know, versus ETFs. And so it, no matter what you do in the financial industry, you know, Bogle could be rough, but he was pretty friendly with the people. Like he's good friends with Cliff Asness. Uh, he was good friends with plenty of actors. Ted, uh, Ted Aronson is one of his best friends, and that's an active manager. Um, and so – and his son, John Bogle Jr., is an active manager. So I think Bogle was, was pretty over the top sometimes vocally and to everything. And again, uh, unless you're the Puritan, I think you're going to – you know. The, there's times in this book where you're like, he kind of trashes your subject matter, but I try to give the other side too. I try to balance it out with, you know, um, this is something because sometimes he'll trash things that he spearheaded. Um, and good for him. He, he just, yeah, he's just, a, he, I know. Well, it, there's a whole chapter called Bogle versus Vanguard um, mm. because he fought with his own company constantly, especially after yeah. he left. I mean, it's the whole, I found a lot of the conflict and I look, I interviewed him for, three different occasions for four hours of audio in the five years before he died. So my goal of this book was to not let that audio die in the dictaphone, but rather 
take it, put it on the paper, get other people to comment, make like a pseudo documentary and offer and, and basically put some of my own analysis and numbers because we track the industry constantly and we're just blown away at, at the ripple effect of not index funds, but the mutual ownership structure. And that's really the thesis of the book. Index funds would have happened with or without Bogle, but they'd have 5% of the assets they do today. It's the mutual ownership structure that's the real change agent. And the thing is, it doesn't stop in index funds. It's getting into the advisory business now. It could get into private equity, could get into crypto. That concept is powerful. And I was also interested that nobody copied it in 50 years. And then people what, were like, is there, well, is there a reason why they can't copy it? No, your question oh. on the copyright is more yeah, about I'm, the, I'm uh, confused, so I'm, yeah. I'm on clarification. The, the question on the copyright is about the ETF being a share class of the mutual fund. Oh, okay. that is that's that is a special deal they have. So like VU is part of uh, the mutual funds that is expiring, I think, in two years. Right. Um, and so that will probably help some other issuers who were thinking of mm -hmm. getting into uh, the ETF business because that helps you to sort of manage taxes in your other mutual funds. I think that would help people. Um, but no, the mutual ownership structure, I, I, unless I'm missing something, I believe anybody could do this anytime. Insurance industry has some of these structures. It was just rare in the asset management industry, which is part of the reason I was interested in the book. I was like, why would, why doesn't, why haven't nobody copied it? And then, you know, uh, people were like, well, no one wants to drive a Volvo and like turn over all their future profits. If there's no economic incentive to do it, so I'm like, well, why did this guy do it? And so that's just an interesting exploration. It's a, it's a real and, and emergent phenomenon based on a, a several circumstances that were absolutely unique and personalities that were absolutely unique that set in motion a, 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 a series of events, right? Now now your, your mutual fund unit holders own the firm, so of course they're going to roll down profits. But what an incredible... Uh, sort of germination of this weird set of circumstances that it's chaos manifesting in something good. And I want to pull on that thread a little bit that Eric was mentioning about his personality, right? Because it seems like you were able to interview pretty much anybody that you wanted. Was there anybody that you weren't able to talk to uh, about Jack? And 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 I want to and I want to kind of couch this with. I'm trying to understand what kind of man he was. You've told a couple of anecdotes that you know, paint a pretty complex picture, like fighting like a bit of contradiction in his personality. So I wonder if you might first comment on some of the people that you weren't able to to speak to and then kind of painting a broader picture of the man before we dive into the uh, the business model. Uh, sure. Two people that stick out that, well, some of the people I were, was able to interview include Warren Buffett. I mean, he returned my wow. email within a day. And wow. I was like, wow. Spectacular. And, and Bloomberg, I got the email from Bloomberg TV people who have it on file. And they're like, they were like, he won't get back to you. And by the way, you know, we're only doing this as a favor. Don't bother him. Um, but he got back quickly. Um, he generally likes the guy. And then I got Michael Lewis, Cliff Asnes, a um, uh, variety of people. Um, uh, Jason Zweig, I thought, was one of the best interviews. Jason had been covering him for a while. And Jason's very articulate and has been really eagle-eyed focused in the fund industry for a long time. Um, and I got some of the people who worked with him back in the day. Jan Twardowski was with him in the room when they decided to do the index fund, as was Jim Rippey. Um, and then some people who worked at Vanguard, Gus Souter, Jim Norris. Gus was crucial. Uh, Gus is the guy who went into ETFs, had to deal with Bogle's wrath. And um, Gus also threads together this, there was Bogle and then Jack Brennan and then Buckley and McNabb. And Bogle didn't have the greatest relationship with Brennan, but Gus did have a relationship with both of them. And there was some 
hurt feelings there and, and some conflict. But I think Gus was probably the perfect guy. Some people who I didn't interview um, included, I, I tried to get Kramer to interview. I was just curious what Kramer would think of Vogel. Uh, he didn't reply. Um, I'm glad. Now I feel very happy trashing him on Twitter for how he's completely wrong on every single call. It's amazing. He has a reverse Midas touch. I it's That's funny. You guys yeah, dude, you guys are factor guys. I would put this into the factor zoo and bet it and see Within if the, the academics model. find something. Oh, we've yeah. We've machine learned the crap out of that. We, we're, it's one of our indicators. It's literally how we got our alpha in 2022. <laughs> we even have vacation <laughs> indicators here. So. Yeah, we have a lot of... Uh... It is amazing, um, somebody, isn't it? But... It really is. Uh, some, another person who they wouldn't interview is the uh, heads of Vanguard, like the top executives. They politely declined. I think they're trying to shift away from the Bogle name a little bit. I, I understand that. They, they've largely been nice to me. They, and also, I work with uh, their PR guy, Freddie Martino, who was very good with the data. There's a lot of data I had to really like get straight here. Uh, this, this book's written casually, but hopefully there's enough data for the nerds to, to get something out of it as well. Um, or my flip, I hope there's not too much data where the regular people are like, oh, this is too, too intense for me. I don't know, but, um, they were very helpful with that. So I, Vanguard helped me, but they didn't offer anybody. They didn't, they passed, uh, they have a new PR, uh, head of PR there who I believe used to work at Janus. And I think they're just feeling a little of attack lately by people with ESG and like, oh, password's mm. going to ruin the earth. And. I think they're just a little more cautious with who and what they do. Plus, they're probably trying to shift away from the, the Bogle name a bit. They I mean, they got rid of the ship logo. So I have a chapter where I look at some of the ways Vanguard is sort of, you know, forging Balling. its own path. Yeah. So, so I've always thought that the reason or the uniqueness about Bogle and, and Vanguard was the they were the personification of compound return, right? where you have this like very long period of flatness, flatness, flatness. It looks flat if you look at the growth of that company, right? And all of a sudden in like the last chapter of the book, it just goes hyperbolic. And I always allotted that to his personality and the fact that he was consistent from day one. But you're telling me that he wasn't as consistent. So would you say that he was consistent in messaging? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand that. Was he his message consistent from day one? Or did he flip-flop a lot and kind of go with the flow? Well, once he locked into the Vanguard mutual ownership structure, I, I think and that was in the six, that was in six, that was in 74, 74, 74, 75. And then once he um, found out about the index fund, he read the journal of indexing. I will say this guy got a lot of benefit from flipping through financial magazines and journals. So I, I say in the book, it's a really good habit. Uh, Cause I wrote a book on the ETF and, they got the idea by flipping through this boring SEC um, postmortem on the 87 crash. It was on like page 300. So there are definitely diamonds in this sort of academic deep reads. Um, you know, everybody's on Twitter. And I think that, that it's a good lesson that some of the really good stuff's deeper in, in the haystack there. But anyway, um, by the way, your, your stat is so true. Listen to this data. Vanguard has 8.3 trillion. 7.3 trillion came after the firm's 30th birthday. Yeah. Right? So it it took the firm 30 years to get to 1 trillion. And then what are we at? 15 years to get to 8. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about Vanguard, and I think is probably a scary chart if you're a big asset manager. I, I really think the small asset managers are probably somewhat immune from the Vanguard effect. They're going to serve local audiences. 
They're going to serve more sophisticated audiences. They're going to have relationships. It's that big legacy mutual fund company that I think are going to be uh, really under pressure for the next 30 years uh, because Vanguard has 30% market share of assets in U.S. fund business, but only takes in 5% of the revenue. I mean, yeah. I, I don't I know a that spread stat. that big. I and, could not believe it. Like that is, uh, that, that, you ne you've never seen that in Wall Street. Never seen never it. Never expected to see it, right? Like, and Bogle's personal stat, the fact that he, I mean, as compared to, in proportion to the AUM that he managed versus any other company in Wall Street, like the, the wealth that he accumulated was much, much smaller than any other major fund manager. And I think I think you make a great point, Eric, too, that at size, at size, how are you going to uh, add alpha when 30 percent of the flows are are Vanguard, right? The, the stock to flow idea of well, Vanguard sitting on a huge piece of what the index is, money's flowing in, which reinforces that. And then you at size with billions of dollars are going to try to add value in some way. Now, I think cross asset might be a way to do it. I think there's, there are some ways because you do get locked into certain indices. Like you draw the bright lines around the S&P 500, draw the bright lines around the you know other major indices, hard to beat. When you start to open it up a little bit more and you get you know sort of cross asset or cross exchange type stuff, maybe, maybe there's a chance, but well, you know, I at think, size it's you know. We had Rodrigo on about the 60-40 stacking thing. Yeah. Um, that's a solution. I mean, I think if you have a solution or if you're operating where Vanguard isn't, this is why I've been so defensive of Kathy, not because I think her returns are going to go up or down, but she has a lane that Vanguard doesn't swim in. So yeah. it's crypto. So anything that's like crazy wild and high active, I think is going to have a home, believe it or not. Because I think the more serious investor with the CFAs are going like, well, we're going to own mostly FANG, and then we'll make stuff at the edges. The problem there is you can now get – there's many versions of a Vanguard growth fund for six basis points, which hold mostly FANG, a little less FANG, S&P. I mean, there's really – I mean, you've got to be real out there to be different at this point. Otherwise, right. someone's looking at your holdings and go, well, I can get mostly the same thing for four or five basis points. I mean, that's why – and that's what the big shops sell. But the problem is they can't go full Kathy Wood because they have people whose fund is their main hold. So no. it, they can't just switch and go high octane because then the, if the boomer who owns it, they, they don't want to have that much risk. So they're locked into closet indexing for a while. And that's where Vanguard's eating their lunch because people are like, why would I want to? I'll just buy, as uh, Michael, uh, Ben Carlson said, people moving from closet indexing to just indexing. Uh, that, yeah, that's been right. the main yeah. shift here. Yeah. Beta is so, free. Essentially, yeah. access to beta in specific markets is kind of free. You have to want something different, like something with high active shares. Yeah, or price it like beta, like Goldman's GSLC is very much like the S and P, but and with a little tiny factory. It's 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 closet factoring, I guess, or whatever. But uh, closet indexing factor style, but it charges nine bits. So if you yeah. are gonna, I think you have to just price beta at beta, and then have your act be appropriately priced. Which is why I think Arc and Themes get away for 60, 70 basis points. So. I also think alts probably have a bright future because this has been a long, nice run for the 60-40. So I think alternatives um, are, are in a good spot, to be honest. And that yeah, Vanguard I, isn't I, really I agree. There. And it, it's so funny that you mentioned the 1960s as being a period of growth. I was planning on going back to the last 100 years to see which periods 
led to growth stocks becoming highly concentrated and and grabbing all the money. My thesis is that in periods of benign inflation, where you have visibility of funding, whether it's, you know, you have a 30-year project, which is what growth stocks do, right? They'll say, listen, I have this crazy idea. It's 30 years out, but the, you know, inflation super control, volatility out of inflation is low, you know, there's visibility for a future, and they would just gather all of the money. Right? You concentrate all of the flows available to those five, six, ten com- companies that are really doing something novel and innovative with this massive duration. And the moment that you start seeing inflation peak its head, it starts breaking things, right? You all of a sudden go from a very visible handful of stocks where everybody agrees are the winners to, oh my God, these guys are down 50%. We have to allocate money elsewhere. Things are, emerging markets are becoming useful because of inflation and commodities. You start seeing, you know, value stocks with tangible assets in their books where you can actually, when you're buying the company, you know what you're getting, so on and so forth. All of a sudden we go from one bet, one massive bet, to 20 dispersive bets that active management will benefit from. So it'll be interesting for me to see, because this is what I think has happened, right? I think we are in a, going to be in a period of inflation volatility that is already breaking things. And active management is going to be back in vogue in a way that it was for 2000 and 2010, maybe. Um, and, I, I would and, agree. And so that, when, when did inflation begin, Mike, in, in 67? 67, 68? When was it like, I think it was around... There well, it, it was it was actually inflation volatility was pervasive post war. It was pervasive. But it was that ten year period in the sixties was a little no, bit. More. No, it got crazy no. in the seventies, right? It, it got well, crazy in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. I have to look, but I know the in market fact, went the 40s, down. Like, post war, what happened was we had massive inflation spikes, and we had the Fed keep rates very low. In the seventies, what happened is we had massive inflation spikes, where the Fed actually interjected and raised rates to close the gap which creates very different uh, very different impacts to the to the, to the system to the financial system um, but they, anyway that's just a small point of clarification it really doesn't matter they, they do wreak some havoc with some inequities and you have to think about what your starting valuations are as well um, he, he has a quote uh, you know in the long run reality rules I think that's sort of what you're talking about like he has a whole chapter in his last book where he looks at these shooting star funds, including the Janus 20. He probably would have put ARK in there if he was still alive and he wrote it today. Um, but two, two, two things there. I think one is a lot of people, and this is where I uh, defend ARK, was like a lot of people would be like, well, I agree with you. People are going to go back to stuff that has tangible value, cash flow, dividends, like the stuff that matters, right? Investment returns as speculator, speculative returns just crash, right? And I think, I mean, that he actually marketed over and over. He just sort of made it to like, that's why I just own the whole market. And so I think a lot of people bought into that, buy the whole market, and then they, they want something that is, that is completely speculative just in case that lottery ticket comes up. Uh, and they put that on top like hot sauce. So when you say active, I, the, the active I think that's going to have a problem coming back is, is like the Fidelity Magellan active. I just, I don't see a home for that. In fact, they put an ETF out. It's got like 80 million. I mean, it's a total flop. And that was the biggest fund since sliced bread. In fact, Fidelity is who Vanguard replaced in market share at 14%. Now they have 30. But Fidelity was the last high watermark in the industry. And remember, if you, I don't know if you're old enough, but like Fidelity ruled. I mean, like it, 
they were mocking index funds. They, you know, they didn't think this would last. Americans don't want average. Um, I think over time, he just won the hearts and minds. Also, some corrections, uh, some SPIVA data. I think all that just added up. And I think I have a chapter in the book called The Art of Doing Nothing. Because if you notice, when, when there's a sell-off, like this year, Vanguard's taken in 30, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 55 billion. The rest of the industry has seen 30 billion in outflows. Like everybody else combined, that includes ETFs, and you're, we're going to see this over and over. And the reason is, I think, it's not because all this behavioral literature came out. It's probably a little of that, and I, and I do give it credit in the book a little bit. I think the index fund cured the behavior problem because people were finally like, "Oh, I'm going to own the market for three bips. I cannot do better than this." And they're like, "Okay, fine, I'm down, but what am I going to do? Am I going to like switch out of this, chase something?" And then go back to this when it, ah, screw it. So I think they've come to this settlement. And I, maybe something will change that. I don't know. But I think they've come to this um, place where they just think, I cannot do better than this fund. And that's why you never see outflows from their funds in particular during sell-offs. And that's why these big, long advisors have come up. Uh, the advisors who are like, do behavior. I think it, it's a lot easier to do good behavior if you're in a cheap index fund. It was harder to do behavior in the 90s when you had a mutual fund that was underperforming. You're like, well, do I keep it or do I switch out? I'll switch it. Go to the next you know, big manager that's doing well. So I would just say, if I'm active, I would just plan on the core being occupied by cheap beta funds and figure out how to add to that or offset it if there's a sell-off. That's why you know that stacking concept, like I said, I, I thought it was pretty powerful because you can have your cake and eat it too. Because as you guys said, Nobody really wants to give up that 60-40 at four basis points. It's almost – it's like trying to give up Amazon. It's just too good. The too value attractive, is too good. Too cheap, yes. too – yeah, all of that. But there's, here's, there's an argument. Here's the, here's the macro – well, I mean, go ahead, Richard. Maybe you're going to say what I, I was just, yeah. <laughs> There's an argument to be made that one of the reasons why it was so easy to stick to is that there was a maybe an element of self-fulfilling prophecy attached to this, but we were in the mother of all bull markets for the US 6040 and for owning beta. Could you see a scenario in the next few years, if indeed inflation and inflation volatility is coming into the uh, the zeitgeist and, and, and sort of pervasive across uh, most countries that the market beta starts to suffer enough and, and, and passive maybe has an inflection point. Could you see a scenario where the where, where Vanguard starts to, to lose its, its, uh, its dominance in the market because of uh, inflationary dynamics? I would say 95% no. I don't want to be absolute, but I the, the, the two, two things on that. One, back when your question on this has been a great market for beta, it has, but Vanguard took in money every month in 2008. We could all agree that was not a good year for beta. I mean, I'm telling you, these people are like Navy SEALs. They are so dedicated and resigned to this being the way. To your other point, passive just isn't big caps. Uh, Vanguard has a small cap value fund, VBR. So there are actually cheap passive ways to sort of maybe move around a little bit, make a couple tilts and, and, and whatnot. Again, though, Vanguard doesn't do private equity. Well, they, they might, but they only have a partnership. They don't do Kathy Wood style arc. They don't do themes. That's why I think you see those lanes actually lasting despite perhaps their lack of uh, research due diligence that people are like, why would you buy a cybersecurity ETF? It's, you know, you probably distill it down. You're probably getting like 
I don't know, 80% growth, a little momentum. Like you could probably just break it down what you're getting. And yet it's all, it's got this nice cute name. And um, I, I think that's, that's why, but people sometimes have to remind them ETFs, especially particular ETFs track things that help you hedge. Although well, I'm usually saying that with ETFs because there are uh, alternative ETFs. You've got gold, you've got inverse with Vanguard. I think, yes, there's, Somewhere people might look for something to hedge or offset. I just don't think they're going to leave. I think, again, I think they're resigned to this being the best deal in town. The, the only other thing that I could see happening, and this is, I still think I'm bearish. Look, I, I'm bearish on anything trying to dislodge three bips, three basis point beta. I just am. Um, but <laughs> this is direct bet. indexing. Direct indexing has come along and said, hey, we'll let you pick what you want. and that's one way maybe that you could find some shift, but now Vanguard's offering direct indexing and probably do it at a very low fee. Um, I, I think Bogle would be against that. He would be like, you'll end up, you'll end up, you'll probably end up underperforming. All of a sudden you're the active manager. You don't have any research skills, just stick to the total market. Um, and I would say Bogle was so purist. He, he didn't even like international. Uh, he would just buy VTI. And, so, and maybe some bonds, so and that this, was it. This is, this is the challenge, though. So, what are what is the balance of Vanguard's assets? Do Vanguard's assets mimic the global market capitalization of the global market portfolio? I will bet I, they do not. I will bet they massively overweight U.S. equities in an AUM sense. Oh yeah, there, which yes. is which is plain and simple. This is Mega return chasing. Is probably the biggest. This is return chasing. Yeah. This is. Be, reinforced by the behavioral side of the fact that every time it's gone down, it's come back up quickly. We have been faced by several bear markets that lasted two to three years. We have not had a 10 to 15 year period where we have negative real rates of return on stocks and bonds. Let's get to the 14th year of negative real rates of returns like we did in 1929 to 1945 and like we did in 1967 and 1982. Let's get there to test the metal of these Vanguard disciples. <laughs> and that's where you can tell me that they got the metal. Yeah, I mean, that is such a long period and an extreme period. Uh, like some people would be like, when I would, would defend H Y G, they'd be like, well, what if X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, well, you're describing World War III, okay? If World War III happens, I think we have bigger issues than HYG's discount. Um, <laughs> but like, I think, I, I agree. Like, I, I'm always leaving open room for change, room for a psychological shift in how people think of things. I guess my question, uh, you know, Bogle would probably say this, though. He'd probably say, look, uh, in fact, he was pretty bearish in his forecasting of equity returns going forward. He said they're only yeah. going to return five, six percent, and this was like five years ago. They've yeah. demolished that. So well, he did it say, over a fifteen-year horizon, though, right? Right. So, it's only, so we're only a third of the way through. Exactly. He probably there's say, we're, yeah. There's nothing. He would agree with you. I think that yeah. we owe a lot still, and but he would yeah. still say, "What are you going to do that's better than buying companies where people wake up every day, go create value, and has cash flow?" I mean. You, commodities, they don't have that. Like he, that's really what he honed in on is the investment is returns of companies. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great argument. It really is a function of when you make a bet and by bet, I mean, you decide that you're going to buy the American companies. That is a very significant bet, right? That is only 
half the market cap and only represents maybe a quarter of the global GDP in the world. So it's a massive overweighting. So is that being sure. driven by this passive well, exposure? <laughs> Hell no. That's being driven by because my neighbor owns it and he's doing great. And it, I've sold all my gold. I've sold all my international. I've sold all my emerging markets. How do you think we get here? How do you think we suck all those future returns today by getting all the baby movers and all the millennials and all the Xers long U.S. stocks with 3% yeah, the, of the S&P being Which U.S. stocks gas. too, right? Again, growth. Yeah. So uh, I would, he, he, first of all, he he would say, well, U.S. companies get, I don't know, something like 40% of the revenue overseas. So you've got exposure there. That That's sort of one of his uh, pushbacks. Also, I would say most people don't agree with him. Uh, in fact, I couldn't find anybody who agreed with his international, except for Taylor Larimore, who's the king of the Bogleheads. He said he actually turned out to be right on that, although it's not over. You're right. It's just past 10 years. Uh, but like, I, like Rick Ferry... Um, I don't know if I asked Rick Ferry about international, but Christine Benz, he was like, I disagree with him on that. I talked to Dan Egan of Betterment. He had a great quote. He's like, look, uh, Rome fell. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, precisely. So, so I want to own, you know, he was like, I'm actually taking Vogel's concept, but to the whole world. And so he's like, I just, I don't know what. So I, that was probably the best counter is that, you know, other empires have, have fallen. And I get that. So I think that's a fair argument. I think the gold one is is not bad either because gold has a very useful property as it a zero correlation. Uh, it really is special asset, in my opinion. Um, and I it was trading. It was trading 5,000 years ago. Let's go yeah, through all the right. companies exactly. in the S&P 500 that were trading 5,000 yeah. years ago, shall we? Let's just list them now. Well, he would counter with that. <laughs> I'm a millennial. Has not Apple been around for 500 years? <laughs> well, <laughs> a thousand, but okay. Well, the, you know, the, the counter to that is that, and I try to remind people in this book, is that this is why it, all this isn't really about indexing. The index is an active organism. It's always evolving. It's kicking out the shit and adding it the good stuff. Yep. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. somebody, somebody wrote a column, um, something about like Tesla can relax. Now it's in the S&P. Well, not really. Macy's just got kicked out. Companies get yep. kicked out. If active doesn't like you, you're going to get you're going to price is going to get lower and then the indexes are going to sort of pile on because they're going to kick you out, you get lower weightings. Mm -hmm. So, but active controls that dynamic. Um, but the indexes are just sort of going to like, they're like almost like um, those things on the side of a shark. They're going to just follow where things are and sort of feed off of it. They are riding the yeah. coattails of active. I admit that in the book. Uh, it's true. Um, the question is how active do you need to make those coattails uh, make sense? And that's a debate, and I, I put different viewpoints in the book on that. Uh, some people say you only need like, you know, five percent active. Some people say you need fifty. How did right how now, did they the come to that? I mean, I mean, obviously things are priced at the margin, right? Everything's priced at the margin for the final user, whether it's commodities or stocks or borrowing borrowing uh, money for your mortgage. At the end of the day, the marginal user prices it for everybody in the stack. So how yes. how how did they how did they come to that conclusion? Did you get into any of the reasoning behind it? Because it's 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 fascinating to me. I wouldn't even know how to tackle that problem. Hold on, give me a second. I have a yeah. yeah take your time. I just got to look it up in the book. But yeah. um, the uh, let me do a search here for Control F. Um, Bert Malkiel. Yeah, you guys are good old Burton. You're gonna get me fired up now, fucking random rock <laughs> bullshit. Let, let's see, let's see what he says here. He had a quote on this that was like, probably. Uh, okay, here we go. I I wouldn't worry if 95 percent of the market was index funds. 
there will always be somebody to ensure the market is efficient. Here's Gus Souter. I don't think, I don't have any worries about it. Will market efficiency be compromised? I don't think so. If it's 80% and there are any act managers left standing and they find a cheap stock, they're going to buy it. And if they think it's expensive, they're going to sell it. So I don't think market efficiency is challenged by the growth of indexing. And then I had people who were 75%. Um, Vogel actually was quoted saying, if everybody went to index funds, uh, there would be chaos. But then that's the quote people use who are trying to make the casing. But then he followed by saying that will never happen. But well, it just anyway. doesn't make it, it. You just you got to take it to um, to a point of extremes. that just doesn't make sense when you think about it rationally. Right. There is going to be a point where if the vast majority of the industry is indexing and the indexer is going to get out of a stock at a certain time, get into other stocks, they're going to be front run to a point where active yeah. management will, will become more and more active until that's our doubt, right? Yeah, this well, equilibrium, I mean, this active market will always be, will always get to a point, clearly 30%, I never expected to be the case, right? But here but, they are. And that could be peaking because I think we're ignoring the demographic component to all well, that's this. that's my call for I sure. Mean, yeah, there, there, there's a point at which there's gonna be net outflows from the boomers that are gonna start to live off these portfolios. And these these glide path and these uh, automated allocations to passive have, I think, created this self-fulfilling uh, prophecy nature to passive. But at, at one point, we will arrive at a tipping point after which we will start to see some outflows. And, and, and I guess my question to you is, how aware do you think Bogle was with regards to this uh, generational demographic component? And how aware was he with regards to regime dependency? I mean, he... That, that there's an obvious regime tailwind that uh, uh, beta has benefited from that might not be there in the coming years. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he his worry with, with passive was they would own too much of, like, the, the, they'd have too much control over stock voting. He wasn't too worried mm. about that. I think part of it is, again, that indexes are active. Uh, the S&P is literally run by a human committee. It uses some fundamental screening stocks. You've got the Russell 1000, which is maybe a little more beta, uh, pure. But then you've got like stuff that's uh, brands of indexes that rebalance on different times. You've got mid caps, total market, small caps. Really, there is no such thing as passive. Um, everything's a bet on something. So, but you're right. The target date funds largely hold U.S. large caps, and possibly they're like Mike said. I mean, I think between 2000 and 2009, the S&P was down for the whole decade, and it severely underperformed small cap value. My point on that was, I think we might find the beta investor or the big long advisor might um, add a little VBR. So that's the problem is some of the stuff that might work, like small cap value has clearly got room to run, international small cap value in particular. Um, you can probably get that under 20 right. bits. You, you go from one Vanguard fund to another, yes. one style yeah, a within lot the of, Vanguard family. Yeah. Yes, a lot of alpha has turned into beta, and then gotten mm -hmm. cheap to the mutual ownership structure. So I think part of it is adding value add beyond that process. Um, and so I, I don't disagree. And, you know, I will say on the generational thing, um, hey, boomers are going to live longer than we think, by the way. That's why biotech's such a great buy. Like, they they want to live forever. They have all the money and they want to live forever. So they'll be around for a while. I do think when they start withdrawing, they're largely going to sell their active funds. I think they have less loyalty to those funds. They're probably put in there by a broker. That's where I disagree with someone like Mike Green. I think it's the active funds that are going to be have a mass withdrawal. That's what we've seen. By the way, in 2020, in March, 
active mutual funds saw 300, I think it was, might've been 400 billion come out in the month. That's, that's almost half a trillion. I might be overstating it, but let's just say it's three to 400 to 500 billion somewhere in there. That's ridiculous. And that, and so we expect, right. we wrote a note saying that they're going to see over a trillion dollars in outflows this year. So you're going to see that first, that's going to be the first problem. And then in the next generation, maybe 20 years later, it's possible passive start selling. The question is, what will be the next bid? What will buy under that? Maybe nothing. So maybe in 20 years, the stock market has like, it just, the bottom falls out. There's a huge 15 year bear market and people just ditch equities altogether for a long time. And there's some new paradigm or crypto. I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to predict all this, but I will right, say well, I'll go back to cash flows. Well, no, and, and that, I think um, you, I think you, you make some good points, and I think Rodrigo tying this back to regimes, I think, is key. That's right. Money goes to where it's treated best. Mm -hmm. In 1980, the S&P 500 had a 29% exposure to oil and gas. 1980 happens to be the end of the 70s. What did well in the 70s? Well, oil and gas did really, really well. Yom Kippur War and whatnot, and then it took it took a nosedive. Till the tech bubble, where it you know came in at three to four percent, then we had the 08 rip back up to eighteen percent. Exxon's the largest company in the S and P five hundred, and now we're back at four percent again. So if you think there's a regime shift occurring and you think there's inflationary volatility, which is a call, this is something that you're you know saying you can do it by adding small caps, adding those resource, adding international. There's a lots of stuff you can do, but now we're in the realm of active. Right, but it, cheap it, active. Not I the think the of, point is that sure, you can go sure, into the Vanguard family sure. and get it for twenty beeps, right? Sure, but you're you still making some active calls. Here. Like you're, you're still days. making some active calls. And my point is, money goes where it's treated best. So if we have an inflationary surge right now, and if we are going to see oil prices become bullish for a decade or two, which has happened in the past because of the supply constraints, because of all the stuff going on, because there's no investment in ESG in, in any of the production. If we have that going on in the S&P, you have a grand total of a 4% weighting right now for your energy exposure. If the regime has shifted, your S&P exposure is off the reservation. It's yeah. not yeah. balanced it's not, in any well, way. It's not giving you any and it happened in 2000. It happened in 2000. It happened in 2008. It's happening again. So it's just something people have to be aware of in a market cap weighted system. If you if you're investing for 100 years, eh, you probably don't care. Anyway, I turn so, it back over to you guys. Let me bring up one point, and I think this is something we saw at VXUS. This is the Vanguard International Fund. Mm -hmm. um, it has taken in, I think, money every every day or week for like three or four years, and we were scratching our heads because it, it didn't have a great run. It wasn't. I, I think you do have Vanguard investors and the big long advisors rebalancing. So I do Brilliant. think that they, they have moved into international over the years because these flows don't really make performance chasing sense, um, right. but they're very thick and they're very consistent. Um, so I, I, I think there's some of that. I, I guess the question is, uh, is there, well, there's some, will something happen where everything inside the Vanguard family, you can't like, there's nothing that isn't, is up. Because a lot of stuff has just gone up for a long time. And, and that's something, again, back to that 60-40, um, the 60 and the 40 has gone up. And if rising rates mean bond, all the bonds people own are worth less, which is I really worry about bond mutual funds. I, I feel you know, they keep seeing outflows and there could be a nasty downward spiral in the, in the 
coming up. And if high rates and inflate and let's say you're raising rates and the inflation's high, that's bad for stocks. You know, then you're out outside of the 60-40. Vanguard doesn't play in too many places. Maybe small cap value, maybe international, I guess. But I think international takes a hit if the U.S. does. I don't know. It. I, I think things that are structured in a way that can maybe sort of offset some of those 60-40 declines, I think will do good. That's why that like Bruce Bond and the Innovator Shares uses flex options to sort of lock in a certain downside or like give you a a, a, a place between say well, five and twenty percent. I think those. That's it. Yeah. So so, so those, I think those kind of things your, probably your have prediction. Your prediction was in the next five. Did you say five to, five to ten years? Active continues to eat. Uh, sorry, passive continues to eat active. Active funds lunch, right? And then maybe afterwards something else happens. Depends on right? the active, That's, but legacy traditional legacy mutual closet fund. indexish active closet indexing in particular. Yes, because my view is because I was going to given that we're going to live forever, Eric. Um, I was going to I was going to make <laughs> a, a I was going to bet a penny that by the end of this decade. I'm actually like at high active share active management, not closet indexers, are likely to be getting more flows as a category than passive. That's my prediction. By like year nine, Wait, high of this active cycle. share. Yeah, like I yeah, think like I mean, just generally active managers that have a large tracking error to the index will be a category that is going to dominate in terms totally. of percentage. Oh no, every year the end of that's an implicit <laughs> call that the index is going to suffer. That's yeah, no, no, no. Right. Well, well, it, uh, well, no. I, I think. Uh, so I agree with you. We have two. We are bullish on two things: dirt cheap and shiny objects. And <laughs> shiny objects well is said. my or hot sauce. It's my term for high tracking error, which would be the academic way to say that. Mm-hmm. I still think dirt cheap muscles through because the value proposition is so strong. It's like Amazon. I think what happens is people use the shiny object lane to A, buy things that are like call options, major asymmetric return possibilities, crypto, ARC, and things that can possibly offset or hedge against that 60-40. So I think both grow, the middle screwed. That's right, my right. thesis. Yeah, 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 no, I, that's actually yeah. a very good point. I agree, all that legacy closet indexing where you're actually 99% the same as Vanguard and 1% you know, active, because you got, also they got too big to really be active and high hat have too yeah. high of an active share that's that's that that's the middle that i agree will go away right you're either going to so be I, adding value or choose that you can't and go passive and that middle is going to yeah. squeeze down i yeah. you know there, there's a sorry go ahead no you go ahead okay so just on that concept um i have a chapter in the book called the fall and rise of active and that's exactly what it's about and, and the fall by the way I say, look, everybody thinks it's underperformance, SPIVA reports and all this. And I'm like, partially. But that's just a symptom of a real root problem, which is that dollar fees. Um, and this is something I try to explain. It's hard, though. If you charge 1% and you're small, it, it's completely justified. I mean, your total dollar fees aren't going to be that much. But some of these companies got to be 100 300 trillion dollar companies. And they never passed on any of those economies of scale, especially given the market gives the men 9% a year of freeness. That's a lot of gravy. All they had to do was just share a little of that with the customer. And I think they would have built up trust. The performance ratings would have been better because they would have been at this point, maybe they would have been at four basis points, but possibly if they had a schedule of passing on economies of scale, they might be at 35. And their beat rate would have been much higher, not as embarrassing as they are in this FIFA report. So I sort of find it ironic that the 
companies that were designed to analyze stocks. And there's probably companies that would uh, sell a stock that didn't recognize these, you know, disruptive periods. They themselves missed an opportunity to buy to, to bypass this major disruption. So, so I think that's the sort of original sin. Underperformance came after because now you're at 70 basis points, the perform, and then you're trading 80% turnover. So you're like 150, 170% in costs. And then the S&P is here. You have a lot to catch up to just to get to start. And now that you can buy the starting line, well, it's just a, it's a very easy. And then you take that 170 and you put $10,000 growth and it becomes a $200,000 gap in 50 years. It's just very compelling. Had they, sh had they shared, I think they could have made Vanguard a much smaller it's, company. Yeah. It's, hard, it's hard for Blockbuster to see Netflix. I, I agree. And I, I admit in the book, if I was a big mutual fund company and all this money came in, and we, I would have bought it. I would have, I would have named, put our name on stadiums too. I would have hired more people. I would not have shared any. I, I, I know myself. So, <laughs> it's anti-capitalist. Yeah, isn't it's, that it's, like almost communist? That's so anti-American. Well, <laughs> well I, I will say Barry Ritholtz has this quote about Apple and how Steve Jobs would put the, the iPod mm -hmm. out then he would put one with more memory, but at a cheaper cost. Then he kept putting more memory, cheaper cost. And that's how Apple blew away everyone in that Steve Jobs comeback era. So there are other businesses, and Steve Jobs even says, you've got to cannibalize yourself before somebody else does. So there is a classic business study here for people, I hope, in that mm -hmm. you know you got to make sure you're taking care of your customers. Don't get too greedy. Uh, there's plenty of money still left over. And it's fine to charge for high percentage fees if you're small. But again, once you grow, the dollar fees become absolutely it, it, ridiculous. You gotta find the right balance. Cause it's funny, it's easy to reduce your fees, but not easy to increase them, right? So you could go to a period where you're growing, you're growing, you're growing. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna share some stuff. I'm gonna reduce my fees on a schedule here as I grow from, my dollar fees are growing. But what happens if there's a disruption and your AUM gets cut by a third? Are you going to then increase pro rata your fees back to where you were at the previous, you know, two thirds AUM? That's that's the way to do it. That's the way to if, if you're thinking about the shareholders of the company, they're saying, well, this isn't just a one way road up. Right. We, maybe well, there's I, a way to find to, to adjust yeah. fees, increase them as your AUM goes down if you have a bad year. You, but it's I, it, who's going to be able I to would, do it? What, what investor is going to be willing to I would take add to that? I would add to that one other other component. When you've commoditized something, the commodity, the value of a commodity is the lowest cost producer. Sure. If you're a manager who provides value, actual value, like Rentec is not reducing the five and fifty on their fund, and they're not letting you in to get it. And they're 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 gonna give you two two birds as to you should reduce fees and share it with the investors. No, that's yeah. not happening. That, that is not happening, right? So this is a conversation also about value. If you're yes. providing value yes. to the investor in excess of the fees, then, I mean, it's a slightly different fee discussion. What Vanguard did so wonderfully is they commoditized beta and they trained people about the commodity that is beta and they changed the finish line, as you said, Eric. They changed it. They said, this isn't winning. We're getting close to this isn't winning. This is the bogey. Like, this is what you get. So anyone who's going to charge you a fee above that needs to be on some reliable time frame 
having an ability to add beyond the fee they're charging. And alpha has become so scarce that it has to command some form of premium, right? At the end of the day, uh, beta has just blown alpha out of the water for the vast majority of managers, which is why it's grown so much. So if you do have a consistent alpha, it's going to continue to command a premium. I can't see that becoming commoditized. Yeah, well, yeah and, and I remember the, two the years ago, Richard that, is I, making I sure the premium is above the fee, right? We add two percent of uh, of value, and we charge two and a half percent fee. Well, that's kind of a <laughs> I yeah, size matters. Years ago, there was a there's a quant manager that said, uh, "Buck the trend." They I can't remember what two sigma, can't remember, but they were like, "Yeah, it, it used to be two and twenty. It's now it's now two and 30. And it was literally I, two years ago. And I'm like, good for you. I mean, you to be able to was, do that and not lose clients, that's bucking I, the trend already. I was chatting at a conference, and, so, and to your point, somebody said that the highest cost hedge funds are the best. And um, I don't disagree. I think people might pay up for certain things in their life, but then they go to Amazon for the bulk of their shit. Um, sure. You know, and, yeah. Yeah. But, I love but the analogy. Not, I love yeah, Vanguard is the Amazon. It's customer it first. It's lowest cost base. It yeah. is the Amazon of asset managers for sure. Yeah, or like you take an Uber mostly, but then every now and then you, you know, maybe you get a limo or something. You know, like it's there are definitely everywhere in our life we sometimes splurge, and I think sometimes you know when it's worth it and when it isn't. And um, I think Vanguard just took that middle and made, like you said, they they really uh, took it over, um, yeah. and it's hard to go back. But I agree. Um, the uh, but I would say Rentech is doing something completely different. Totally. Vanguard does, can't do that, and so we Very always say, like, we're like, look, you hate Kathy Wood, but she is she she has shown that you go where the index can't. Right. And if you if you can go if you can escape the grasp of the index, you, you're probably okay uh, because there's going to always be a demand, and if you're way far away from the index, you also increase the chances of some performance that is unusual or high. Um, and, and people will pay attention to that. I think with the, the days of like, oh, we beat the S&P by two percentage points. I just don't know if that does it for people, um, even though there are managers that do it. And, you know, this interesting thing about excess return, if you do excess return, I think it was Jeff Patak at Morningstar put it up um, and he's got some great data. ARC isn't that great at that. And but we may be in a post excess return world where. People don't care if it's excess or not. It just has to be different um, because – and also I think there's a, there's a feeling that, well, okay, yeah, but only two, one-third produced any excess return at all, and I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to take a 33% chance for 80 bips, and, then I'll, and I'm wrong. Shit. Jokes on me. Conversational alpha and all that, right? Conversational alpha. <laughs> conversational <laughs> alpha. I know you love that. No, I, I had that was one of my favorite reeling from that. cast memories. Yeah. <laughs> but you just dropped a good conversational alpha that I just took a note and I'm stealing it. I love the, the this idea of uh, what was it? Amazon Vanguard being the Amazon of asset managers. And then mm-hmm. what was your last point? Just lost well, just that you, you you don't buy everything from Amazon. I mean, nobody does. Uh, or going where the index can. Going where yeah. the index can. That's yeah, right. You, that's the one. Yeah, that's a good one. If, if I was starting up an active shop, I would make sure I had at least some of that. Maybe you don't do – maybe you have, I don't know. It, there's a balancing act. Yeah. If you're young and small, the problem with the legacy managers is they're, they have to be closet indexers now because they have boomers who signed up for a core exposure. So they're locked into it. So for the younger ones, that's why ARC is in, is in a good spot. 
they actually pioneered what I think is a whole new genre that could ultimately, like you said, be bigger than a Fidelity someday, which is high active, just hot sauce, hot sauce for your boring vanilla, which is very good for you. You know, it'll do well, but it's boring as shit. And you want to, you want something a little extra. You want to hedge in case it doesn't work for 10 years. I find there's a, a lot of innovation potential there. Speaking of hot sauce, and I, I want to shift the conversation. I think Vanguard's a great story. Uh, read Eric's book when it comes out. When does it come out? Uh, April 26th, but you can pre-order on you Amazon. Pre-order. Pre-order it now. Pre-order pre it now. Um, Will it be available in all formats, Audible and all yeah, that sort sure. of stuff too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, Is I didn't read it. Reading but, it? By the way, oh. they gave me two, they gave me two mm. choices for the audio guy. And I, I, one of the clips had the guy playing multiple characters. So I was like, that guy. So hopefully he'll read like Jason Zweig's so, voice differently than like Michael Kitsis and oh, I don't know, maybe we'll see. Like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Let's talk about spicy, spicy ETFs and ETNs out there these days. Let's talk about what's going on with the Russian ETF and uh, how do you feel about the ETF market now? Like what, what, where are we at? Well, you know, we had Dave Nadig on our podcast. Russia is completely unique. It hadn't happened since, as he said, Cuba or Iran. You got to go back before the ETF to find anything like this. ETFs have halted creations you know, on occasion, like Egypt, um, where it trades on even though the underlying is closed. And ETFs are good at that. They become price discovery vehicles. I mean, every day, Japan ETF is open when the underlying is closed. And it works like that. No problem. Russia, they halted the, the trading. The exchange did. That, that's weird. It's never happened. And this is because it's, we, you know, the ETF got thrust into a literal governmental geopolitical situation with sanctions. And I don't know, there's really not much you can do. Like, this is, I guess you well, could say no, this is why they call them the emerging markets. But those people are probably market maker. How does a market maker uh, manage the risk? Like if, if Japan is closed, there's some something that proxy. the market maker can do. Sure. Proxy. Oh, yeah. Something happening, some sort of liquidity that they can, they can bank on. Even with, you know, the liquidity you can get outside of the OTC market for fixed income, there's a, there's a reference index there. What's the reference index for Russia right now? Oh, well, there is, the market makers widen their spreads, first of all, but they also, the price somewhat was determined by investors. I mean, retail started saying, actually, it's worth six bucks, not one dollar uh, because of the hope that there's a resolution and it spikes up because it was trading at 33 only four months ago. I kind of get that trade. I feel bad for people who came in with options or bought the ETF itself. I, I don't, I, I fear that it just gets liquidated. You get nothing or, you know, 40 cents. I'd rather just keep me frozen in there like Ted Williams. And just, if it ever gets unfrozen, let me just participate in that spike up. Figure out what the value is. Yeah. Yes. So I don't know. It's a fascinating, weird situation. And uh, uh, I don't know to say. Uh, I, was, I will say <laughs> ETFs were the last man standing. I mean, mutual funds halted re uh, redemptions probably two weeks. Uh, ETFs lasted they did their best. They are like cockroaches. I mean, you, but also Van Eck didn't want to close it. It was the exchange. The exchange says we, we will let a trade. So um, that's also something to consider. Well, that's so interesting. Because, yeah. So I, I, I did, I do, I, cause in the, it is ironic that people are like ETFs are this like liquidity traps. Actually, they're actually liquidity producers. Um, and this situation shows this when the, even in bonds uh, ETFs, when the underlying is very illiquid, the ETF will trade. You can get out. You, you may not love the price, but there is a market there. So right. the, market's, I like the market that. is there. You almost want the mutual yes. fund to use the index as their reference uh, 
the reference yeah, index to they don't. Stuff. And so it seems like the ETFs, <laughs> it's complicated. I don't want to get into that whole situation, but like um, the e- RSX would be trading fine if it wasn't for the exchange. Uh, hmm. And you probably have a lot of whack jobs just going back and forth, whether it's worth $3 or 7 or whatever. It would be fascinating because people will be pricing Russia based on the news flow. Uh, I, I kind of wish it was still trading, to be honest, uh, but it, they won't let it. Last time you were here, you were very bullish on thematics in general. You, you, you saw this this emergence of narrative as a very powerful uh, dynamic in markets and that thematic ETFs were going to uh, really have their day in the sun. Do you continue to be bullish on that? What are some of the themes that you're watching? Yes, uh, simply because, again, they're, they, they, they're, they're one – they're out further than Vanguard. They're fishing out further than when Ver- where Van- Vanguard where the is index not gonna, can't go. Yeah, Vanguard's not going to launch an EV fund. You know what I mean? They're just not going. It's just not their thing. Maybe two or three CEOs down the road, some millennial takes over and says we're doing a cannabis <laughs> fund. I don't know. Um, actually, I think they could launch a crypto fund before they launch theme ETFs, and I'll tell you why. The one thing is they have. Advisor is, and they're going to have, have a solution for them on public uh, private equity sure. and, and for crypto. And if they don't like any of the crypto pricing out there, they may launch their own. They vehemently deny it to me, but let five years go by. Possibly for they sure. could. So, to answer your question though, themes are bigger than any sector in terms of assets now. Um, they have, I want to say, let's see, I'll get you the right number here. Um, and the reason I'm bullish is because of the narrative. But also because of the um, uh, the, the idea that well it, it, they have high act share they're able to sort of play into that narrative people like things they can understand um, I think advisors uh, are not crazy about themes out there a lot of theme ETFs are bought by retail directly um, so thematic has 140 billion okay tech has 160 so they go back and forth and then nothing is even close. Those mm. two are just like about even. That's how big themes are. So, you know, we've got clean energy. I like uranium. I think uranium is a fascinating theme. Mike's um, ears just perked up. The, the whole thing about themes is you usually get 90 or at least above 80% active share because they go into small and mids. And you get M&A pop potential uh, because a lot of times they'll go to these smaller companies that would never be able to qualify for a Vanguard index fund. But they get bought. So theme ETFs get this little extra pop sometimes from M&A, which you can't predict unless you have, you know, illegal information. Um, so that's why I generally am bullish on them because they fit into the portfolio. They can complement cheap beta. And even though, again, it might seem counterintuitive to somebody who is very serious minded as an investor, that's why I, I really am only bullish because of practical purposes. Um, right. And, uh, and that's, so cannabis, so, blockchain, crypto, space, work from home, 5G. But the next theme to watch is when they try to repackage value. You know how you just describe things, things you can touch and feel? Guarantee there's going to be an ETF called shit you can touch and feel. And yeah, it's going to be valuable. Tangible yeah. in a four-word. Yeah. Shit you can touch and feel. What's the ticker on that shit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or shit yes, no, ready? no, no, I got it. Shit you can't live without. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Toilet paper, uh, you know. So – uh, because themes really stole a lot of momentum and growth thunder over the past 10 years. And look out. I mean, they started doing value. They did cruises, airlines, and hotels, um, which is essentially a value trade. Um, they could start coming up with creative ways to package dirty energy uh, with, I don't know. Yeah. like. Um, but anyway, I do feel like themes are going to continue to take something working 
and package it with this nice, cute, cute narrative and do their best to It's a lot easier to market. Add active it. share and say, look, uh, this will make your Vanguard portfolio a lot less dull. So we have this so, theme we call, um, here we are now, entertain us, which is the Vanguard riff, which is like, I think funds are going to get even more and more silly, entertaining, um, and, and then I, I, you know, and it, it's possible a 10 year Michael Philbrick bear market from hell, <laughs> uh, you know, softens this a lot, yeah, yeah. but barring that, it, I think we'll continue to see this. Well, no, I think, I think the thesis is that market cap bear market is a 10 year call. I think oh, right, thematic, right. thematic bull markets are likely to be quite interesting. Also because um, they're a chameleon. They're almost like momentum in right. a way. Except they're like yeah. narrative momentum. They're like mom they package momentum with narrative. Sure. Well, momentum exactly. tends to load anything that's working tends to load right. on momentum. So it, sure. it, it might it might differ on what kind of definition of momentum, what kind of lookbacks you're looking at. But whatever's working is going to load on some version of trend and momentum. Sure. So so speaking of uh, momentum or of DXX and its uh, upward swing that never quite made it. So what are your thoughts on that? That's that's a that's a piece of shit. Um, this is what pisses me off because I'm a guy who defends the industry. I think it's a good clean sure. industry, largely. Uh, I, I don't think Van Eck's at fault for Russia. No, no, that's you know, Putin is at fault for that. This is on Barclays. I, I guarantee you, some middle manager looked at the books and ETNs show up as debt on a ETN issuer's books. They said, "Look at all these freaking look at this VIX exposure," and we're going into. Russia situation and the Fed hiking, VIX could go crazy, um, you know, or they're short VIX. Uh, we, we do not want to be short volatility during this. And they probably just were uh, scared, I guess, and they have risk managers and they just said no. And so they just made a like an authoritarian decision. And not once did, like, I, there's a guy who used to be at, uh, do Barclays ETNs who was really great. He went to the ETN conferences. Great guy. I think he he might have been a guy to push back on this because this is a weird halting of creations. This is a middle manager who give a shit about the ETF community and the world and the reputation. Whereas I think if that guy was there, he might have said, listen, let's figure out a way to hedge this or do something. We don't want to damage our own investors like this or the ETF community. But he's not there anymore. He left two years ago. So I think... Banks should just get the get out of the ETN business once and for all. There's too many of these willy-nilly halting creation situations. And the problem is people didn't it, buy, sign up for that. You signed up because it tracked the VIX futures. You didn't mm -hmm. sign up because it was a closed-end fund. That wasn't the deal. So they completely and, – and it's the problem is they write the perspectives they can do this, which is – that's why we have a rating system. We give them all red lights uh, with like 10 different things. And there's some ETNs that are okay, like MLP stock ETNs are okay because they're legit weighted around the annoying tax situation when you actually have to hold the MLPs. And those tend to rarely do this shit. It's usually just stuff that rolls futures, especially the VIX crowd. Um, and I think it sucks. So, so then maybe it's an ETN issue for that particular type of volatile asset classes. I mean, there must be a value for ETNs given how much use cases how many people use it today so what is it what is steel man the other side why are etns good now yeah mostly 
mostly they're good. Everything you can get in an ETN, you get an ETF now. The reason they're good is because they have perfect tracking, right? Because they just promise right. the returns of the industry mm -hmm. tracking. And the number two thing is that they are um, good on taxes. Like if you have futures in an ETF, you get taxed as if you hold the futures, which is an unusual taxation. It many times results in a K-1 form. And generally people just want to get taxed like they own Microsoft or SPY. Sure. With the ETN, you get taxed like that. You know, right. So a, that's a, that's a clear benefit. Clear. It's a, uh, well, we actually looked. The percentage of assets in ETNs, are, in, in our opinion, are like 90% because of the tax loophole. It's not a loophole. You don't, it's just a more traditional the tax, tax feature. Thing. Feature. It's a feature. Yeah. 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 So if, if you put them on a level play field, they probably die a quick death. Uh, but that's why I think they hung around. They used to be put out because they could go places ETFs couldn't yet, like India. The first ETN was India. So they were like, well, India government's weird, and, and they put INP out, and it could give you India, uh, and the ETF couldn't. But then everything started to dissolve in terms of countries and access, and now you can get anything physically backed. And so the ETN's only purpose is as this you know, sort of tax deal. Right. And, right. So that, that seems to be the major focus in those ETNs in the, on the commodity space and the future space. Certainly, the higher the volatility, the more likely you are to have extreme events like this happen in the ETN space, right? Well, what sucks uh, is if you, you know, this is just when you might want to use VXX. You know, um, I know I'll probably right. get creamed by people saying, you know, most people think it's a shit product. You know, on days where the where VIX goes up, it, it pops. I mean, I used to tell people VIX ETPs were largely critic proof. I mean, they get slammed, they get like worse, get the worst press imaginable. Um, but when they pop, they destroy even a negative three X equity ETF. Like they'll go up four times more than that. I call it the jackpot. Uh, so nothing goes up like VIX on crazy days. So there'll always be a market because of that jackpot potential. And that's why they were able to sort of keep an audience, even though they're down 99% since launching is that when they go up, they fucking go up. Yeah. I mean, you, it's like, you gotta give, you, know, you gotta like, give the, uh, the masses a game, man. You gotta give the masses a game. <laughs> it's like Can't triple seven, you know? On the, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this ruins that whole premise I just said, because now, you know, it could do whatever it wants. It, 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 it's, it's lost its ability to track. And that's not what ETFs are supposed to track the underlying. That's the whole point. That's their whole value proposition. So you just killed the heart of the ETF with the halter creations which occasionally I'm okay with if it's like a, a country has a war or something, not war is a bad example. Like in Egypt, they had a, a revolution internally, yeah. um, but not for, oh, uh, I just don't want all that risk in my balance sheet or I'm not into it today. Fair enough. Oh, seems yeah. I mean, it is, it is their own, um, their own book, right? Their own fixed income issuance. So they got to protect themselves. I don't know. Like, I mean, it seems to me like, a volatility ETN might be something that you might want to steer clear from. I still oh, totally. see a lot of value. Yeah. I still see a lot of value in, in more, you know, plain vanilla type of offerings, especially in the commodity space where you can get that tax advantage. Because the thing is, you know, one of the biggest reasons why ETS have taken off is because of their, you know, loopholes on the tax side with the APs being able to create and destroy units and do the swapping. So that's that's that happened again by happenstance and you get this massive benefit and it doesn't work for everything. It works only for stocks, right? On the fixed sync on the future side, there's just no good option. 
aside from that, if you want to, if you want to deal with that. Yeah, there's some, there's some have come out that, that actually have no K1 in the, in the name and they're able to use this Cayman. No, but you're still, Cayman so the, Cayman, the Cayman blocker, you're right. So it's like a DBC turned into PDBC, right? Because DBC was yes. putting on a K1, PDBC put in a blocker. Uh, the issue with that is that what comes out of the blocker is, um, is uh, income. So yeah. it's not, it's, it's still, it's better than a K1. It's just not the same. ETNs yeah. continue to, to win there. I think as long as it's a advantage, ETNs will win. But I agree it, with you that if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to do that, make sure that you can always, you're, if you're going to get through. perfect tracking, get perfect tracking 90, 100% of the time. I mean, and, there is um, market into for bank. You can't. There's a market for a bank to step up and say, we will not halt bank and just own this whole space and provide this. Uh, I mean, but as of now, they're all guilty. Credit Suisse did it. UBS has done it. Barclays has done it. Um, no one is safe. Uh, and that's the problem. You don't know when the next bank's going to just have this feeling to not do it. So, um, yeah, it's unfortunate because there is that benefit. Right. All right. Cool. Those are the hot topics of the day. Anything yeah. else, Eric, that we didn't cover? Did we, yeah. Anything else that's hot or that, that we didn't cover in the book as well that was uh, um, interesting or timely? No. I mean, no, we covered the big topics. And I think your reaction and feedback on those was, was really great. Um, I think uh, I think, I think, think a lot of people, even in the active space, would largely agree to some of the points made here. Like, like you guys did. It's not just this like, oh, just, you know, buy an index fund. It's, I, I try to layer it with a lot of the nuance in all this, but uh, at the same time, just acknowledging that cheap beta is a hell of a drug. I mean, it is. Well, it, it's like it we said, if, if it's truly a commodity, then cheapest yeah. price wins. Like that, that's, yeah. that's it. And I think you, you, you pounded that home several times and it's unassailable logic, right? <laughs> if all yeah. It's just logical. Equal, yeah. You can't, you can't say, no, but I, I want something different. Okay, well, now we're having a different discussion. I'd like value add another. It's a different discussion. Yeah. But Vanguard has become the low-cost producer of beta. And mm -hmm. so and that's why I, I hope if you're an active manager or somebody who uh, is in this business, hopefully this book will, because I go into all different worlds, the trading world, the brokerage platforms, the advisory world. I really try to lay out how the Vanguard effect, which I call the Bogle effect, because I really feel like he was the anomaly, um, is, is going to ripple in. And, and you have to have a plan for this. Um, so, I, I ho but it. hopefully I, I say it in a way that's not too damning. And I'm, you know, and like I said, I, when I go over the mutual funds, I'm like, I've done the same thing. I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm, no, I'm it's weak. Good to, it's good to, yeah. it's what's damning is not knowing. You, yes. you yeah. got to know, you got to know. You got to yes. know. Now don't, make don't all be, the decisions you want now that you know. Yeah. That's yes. right. Don't be an ostrich and put your head in the sand, right? Like the yes. The, yes. the value of, of reading something historical like this, and, and it's also entertaining because of the personalities in it, is that you you now know, and you can make thoughtful decisions based on that, or you can bury your head in the sand. It's up to you, but at least yeah. you know you're, you're <laughs> giving it a little, you know, yeah. little college yeah. try. Yeah. We love you. Anyway, but thank you, thank you guys for letting me come on again and talk about it. And uh, thanks for no, coming. It's great. So, yeah, where this can everybody great. find Thanks. you too? Give us all the deets where they can find you. The the name of the book again. The sure. Amazon uh, plug, all of it. The, the Bogle effect. Just go to Amazon. Probably easiest. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Eric Valchunas, and uh, I have a podcast called Trillions, which is on all the podcasts, and that's free. If you happen to have a terminal, a Bloomberg terminal, um, you can go bi space ETF go, and that is my little home. You know, if Bloomberg's the United States, I run a small post office in Rhode Island, and nice. it's bi ETF. Yeah. Oh no, I, I'm I'm so tiny there. It's I, I'm reminded of this like I don't know once a month. 
it's just such a big place. But I do have a lot of control over this one function. And so that's where you can find me. Yeah, I love that's it. Awesome. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks so much All for right, your time, Eric. Eric. This is yeah, great. You got it, guys. Awesome. Thank you so much. Enjoy, enjoy the weather. Great weather. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.